So yeah, how's it going? It's going great. Yeah. Glad to be here. Yeah. Appreciate but, to talk about all this stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me in your office here. It's a pretty yeah. nice spot. Welcome to Greer. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I was going to ask you about that later on, but maybe we could just do that one now. What brought you to South Carolina? And and we'll back up and go in like to early parts of your background, but why did you choose South Carolina? Well, I don't know if you remember, back in 2005, uh, hurricanes were crisscrossing the state of Florida. We were living in North Tampa at the time. And 48 hours before, you know, you look at the, the spaghetti models of those hurricanes, 48 hours of the spaghetti model from where it was going to land, it seemed like it was going right over North Tampa. I was having to board up the house. We'd lose electricity. And it seemed like it was going on every 10 days. And it got kind of old. So my wife and I, we came up with, a, uh, we found this website called findyourspot.com. And I don't think it exists anymore. But basically, you answer 20, 30 questions of what you want out of a community. We both did it separately. And we came up with, both of us had Greenville. And we said, where's Greenville? So we looked on the map. There it was, halfway between Charlotte and Atlanta. He's like, well, how bad can that be, you know? And so it was only a nine-and-a-half-hour drive. So we threw the kids in the van, and we drove up here one October day, of course, when the leaves are changing colors and the, there's no humidity compared to Tampa. Mm-hmm. We started crunching numbers, and like, wow, cost of living so much cheaper compared to Tampa. That was also the height of a real estate bubble back then. So I was trying to buy an office down there, I was leasing space, and it was driving me nuts as well. So I said, Cameron, we could sell high, buy low. We can get an office and a house at the same time. The kids hadn't started school yet. They were barely out of diapers, right? So we were able to move and take advantage of the timing, the market, get an office, get out of some hurricane way, right? All in the swing of the swing of the bat, right? Yeah. And it was kind of a home run. At that time, also, I was teaching uh, with a fellow named Don McCann who started the Structural Energetic Therapy. We were going around the country, and I was assisting him with teaching, me and several others. And um, he decided he didn't want to um, uh, go around the country anymore. So he started a, basically an institute down there with several rooms and stuff, so a larger property for him. And so it was an opportunity for maybe me to spread the word of that type of work up here because no one was doing it up here yet. Um, We started that, and the funny thing, what happened with that was that only one person from this area finished the class. Everyone else is from out of state, even from Alaska, California, would come to South Carolina, but then they took it back that way. Mm. So um, that was a bummer, but... That was part of the initial movement, too, yeah. is that I wanted to bring this type of therapy in this, this area. We got to, got away from the hurricanes, and yeah. we took advantage, took advantage of the market. What is structural energetic therapy? And actually, while you're thinking about that, what is also structural restoration therapy? And there's a lot of acronyms in this field it's crazy and so there's like straight up massage therapy there's physical therapy 
there's those two I mentioned: structural energetic, structural structural restoration. Then there's um, like DE. What is? Or uh, let's see, CE, CSB. I don't know. What's the yeah, what yeah, are the difference so between the, all these and like? All right. So, structural energetic therapy was developed by a fellow named Don McCann, and he used a lot of. Uh, energetic work along with the therapy all right so so it's more a lot of with intention of what you want the client to feel or you want the intention of the outcome Mm -hmm. however that doesn't really fit with my mode i grew up with my mother being a physical therapist so i was expecting to see physical measurable results with what i wanted to see with my clients because that's sort of who I am. That's how I kind of developed as a, a child. I said, I need to be able to feel it, see it, perform it. Um, and so that's how structural restoration sort of therapy came about. And that's what you're seeing with structural, uh, cranial structural body work, mm-hmm. which is an off, offshoot of how Don presented the material, who was taught by a guy named... Dallas Hancock, who is also in Tampa. And so Peggy and I were, after we left Dawn, we started helping Dallas because Dallas taught Dawn. And Dallas had a way of uh, not presenting it uh, uh, digestible enough for, for therapists. And so that's what Peggy's and I's goal was to make it more digestible for easier to be understood. And we brought our flavors of our experiences to create cranial structural body work as far as continuing education. Okay. So what technically, what's the difference between, say, cranial structural body work and uh, structural energetic therapy? Is there is there a difference or are they kind of They're they're very similar. However, we found Peggy and I found we found that there's some things that we didn't need to use that structural energetic therapy was using and there was other things that he wasn't using Don McCann with structural energetic therapy that we thought was valuable that came from Dallas Hancock that we thought was valuable to put in and then we added some other things from our experience you know I have 26 years of doing this so does Peggy if you take all those years together Mm-hmm. And we can say, you know, we can add this here and here that's not being done over here because we're getting results here. And it's kind of our own f- flavor, so to speak. Yeah. So, there, yes, there are a gazillion manual therapies out there that have different names that definitely blend and come out of the sort of the same roots. Right. It's all soft tissue manipulation to get a result or change out of soft tissue. However, it's kind of like how you're trained and how you think of how you look at the body mm-hmm. of what you want to get done. Okay. So, I want to get your perspective on this because my perspective as a, uh, uh, or after, I've so I've had two sessions with you now and I get the impression that what you're doing is pretty unique in this whole field of all these disciplines. Thank you. And <laughs> the the way it seems unique is that 
you like from the very first time we even talked on the phone, I remember you were like, well, I want to know why your right hip is doing this and not your left hip when I told you where the problem was. And I was kind of like, what? You want to know why? Nobody's ever wondered why something is wrong before, you know, like whenever it seems like when you go to see somebody, they may be really good at finding out what is happening like as far as observing it describing it you know maybe assessing the damage but as far as backing up and asking like what's the root cause of this doesn't seem like many people are interested or even think it's possible to know what the root cause of an injury is so that seemed unique to me but again i'm i've only i'm not in the field so do you think that's a unique way to be looking at injuries is actually looking for root cause yeah so that's why i look at the human body right so if you i don't know how often do you watch a marathon on tv well i mean maybe once or twice a year okay so it's pretty exciting when you see that that lead pack running right right most people look at the lead pack running. It's like, wow, they're doing an incredible job staying together, doing this incredible pace. How long can they hold on to that? Mm-hmm. I get to look from my perspective. I see that too. But I throw in there. It's like I'm trying to guess who's going to break down the first. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say, that guy's left hamstring is working so much harder than his right hamstring compared to the guy that's, Behind him, or to the left of him, and I'm looking at the gate, I'm looking at foot strike, I'm looking at heel lift, I'm looking at head position, arm swing, and how it's all gelling together. And it's funny how I just sit there and I'm trying to say, who's going to, you know, who's going to, and I'll make a bet with my son, who's going to break down first? Do you see what I see? And so that's the, the world I live in when I go into a mall or grocery store. It's the same thing. I'm looking at it as like, oh my gosh, that person is not doing well or they're about to break down. Yeah. Right? So that's, you know, some people see dead people. I see crooked people. I see messed up structural systems in the body. Yeah. That's how it works. So I got introduced to that by going through some hardships myself with the sport of triathlon and coming out of a running background. So I was just doing like sports massage, a lot of stretching. I thought I had a pretty good practice going. And one of the girls that I was coaching at the time, her husband was a professional baseball player or retired baseball player. And um, he he did see Don McCann several times. And he kept telling me, you need to go meet Don. And I kept saying, why? I've got a good sports massage practice. Sports massage is the thing, you know. And it's just another buzzword for, you know, manual manipulation of soft tissue. However, I did drop my ego down and drive two miles down the road and go meet Don and his staff over there. And I received a session from them, and I got up off the table, and I go, wow, I feel different. I've never felt like this before then I went out for an afternoon run and it's like wow I feel different I feel more efficient the way I'm striking the earth how I'm pushing off I feel different I said they're on to something here and so I ended up enrolling in their two year program and 
then started helping them teach. But it took it took that mm -hmm. that complaint of pain to go make a change, right? Feel the results, go apply, and next thing you know, it's like you know what? You're 40 years old. You're pretty. You're feeling pretty darn good. So yes, I look at things different. I like to rewind. You know what we talk call a, a core pattern that's in the body that if you understand that it's there it's easy to pick up on things that are helping things to be asymmetrical does that make sense yeah so the core patterns is that what you said yeah core, so you mean like in a, you're saying that in a negative like a core negative pattern that you need to unwind yeah, well, it's not. I, we don't want to call it negative because it's it's part of the human body, but it's something that's present. That if we know it's there, we can have an easier time to to treat soft tissue. So what so is if, that? if you're trying to? If you don't know that it's there, then you're just hopscotching around and you know crossing your fingers with how you're addressing soft tissue. But if we know that it's there and you can work with it instead of against it, then you get easier results, so faster results. what is the core pattern you're talking about? So the core pattern is a torsion in the body, right? So the body has to prepare for something called birth, right? Mm -hmm. When it's developing in the human, the woman's womb, mm -hmm. right, getting ready for birth, it has to be have the pliability, the suppleness in a direction to where it comes out the birth canal. Mm -hmm. And that birth canal is is set up to deliver in a torsion. Right? And torsion means what exactly? A, a twist. So think of a, a twist from head to toe. Mm -hmm. More like a corkscrew. Right. Right? So if you can envision that, that starts at the base of the head, goes through the head, neck, and shoulders, down through the spine, into the hips, down to the knees, and into the feet. Uh -huh. As we develop, as a young child, that corkscrew, we want it to come out. But it doesn't come out equally in everybody? The answer is no. For the people that comes out the most, where you see balance between the left and right hip bones, the shoulders, the spine. You're going to see the people like your Michael Jordans, your Kobe's, the people that make look jumping and running fast and not getting injured. Those are the people that unwind out of that corkscrew the most. Mm. The unfortunate people that didn't unwind are the people that are have um, harder times in life with defeating gravity. Mm -hmm. Right, so they're injured more often. Right, they have torsions into into their knees. They have end up having a lot of back pain, some discrepancies in their their spine, where you get scoliosis and and, and other abnormalities. Is that torsion the same direction for it? Like when when babies are born, do they always come out in the same direction, or could it be like is it half and half? It can be. Well, it's not quite half and half. It's more like an eighty twenty from the a left torsion or oh. it's going to the right huh. some some people label it as a left torsion some people label it as a right torsion depending on 
which field you're talking to. If you're right. talking to a physician at an osteopathy, it's going to be one direction. If you're talking to a chiropractor, it's going to be at a different name. Right. Okay. But it, but it's the spiral is there, and it's usually about an eighty twenty from the left hip coming forward in front of the right hip. Hmm. All right. And that was discovered from a doctor named um, uh, Zinc. And he went into a hospital, and he, he basically went from bed to bed looking at what they call fascia biased. And he found that it was 80% was going in that direction. Hmm. And so they came up with this theory is left, right, left, right, left, right throughout the body. So it for 80% of the people, that mean like their left hip is slightly ahead of the right and, and shoulders and what where else does that present itself yeah so it goes so if we start from the core of the body right the left hip will be in front of the right hip and it can often have a, a left anterior tilt mm-hmm. compared to the right side right and if we go up the chain through the spine there'll be a reverse of that in the uh, lumbar thoracic intersection Right? Then it changes direction at the uh, cervical thoracic direction. Then it changes direction at your occiput where it meets the top cervical. Right? Mm-hmm. So you'll see if, they, if you took like a hundred people, put them on stage and they're standing in their underwear, you would see this about eight out of ten would be in one direction. The other 20% would be a variation. Of that or it could be a total opposite yeah okay so when you have 80% of your population in one direction yeah that's a pretty good success rate if you'll just go in that direction with your your treatment program right right but you can but if you look at somebody I mean you can tell like which population they're in right you can't you, you yeah. can't yeah, and then you can muscle test it, yeah. which confirms. So you can look, you know, do a, what we call body reading. You can look at the body and say, yep, I see left hip forward rotation, right hip, or right hip's going back. You see the right shoulder coming in and down and reflection of what the left hip is doing. Then you look down into the feet. Oh, yeah, the torsion in the knee is causing the right foot to go out. So the right, the right uh, arch could be collapsing. So it's all kind of interplaying all the way up through. Yeah. So someone, so if someone's coming in with right plantar fasciitis stuff, you have to treat the left hip as well. You can't just go zero in and just do a bunch of red light therapy on the, the fascia of the, the right plantar. Right. You can't just stretch one spot and expect it to go away, or at least not in a hurry. So this torsion pattern... It sounds like this could be the cause of all any number of problems. I mean, but with, with distance runners in particular, have you found this to cause any, like, really common ailments in your practice? Yeah. So think, think, of, uh, think of that corkscrew, all right? Imagine taking two two scales, weight scales, and you step your feet onto those scales, all right? If you have that torsion that's pretty evident, you're going to see two different weights mm. come up, all right? So now you add two different foot strikes, so to speak, compounding differently. 
and you'll hear it all the time where people say, you know, I don't hear my foot striking being the same. It's a pit, pat, pit, pat. One's hitting harder than the other. One shoe is wearing out faster than the other. Marathon training, any kind of distance running, it's all repetitive use stuff, right? So if you take that extra pounding on one side, the left side, it's going to wear out differently, especially if it's got an assistance with that corkscrew of causing more torsion in one knee compared to the other one. One arch being collapsed more than the other one. One hip being more anterior rotated than the other one. And you think what's happening in the back as well, right? Oh, mile eight, my bike, my back hurts all the time. Well, it only has enough strength to go up to that point before it breaks. And the body says, I can't do it anymore with this strain pattern of this torsion being present there. And everybody's different. The weakest link could be just the knee for one person, but the next person it could be their back. Your other right. person can be their ankle or their arch. Your other people, um, you know, be their head, neck, and shoulders. So you, you said repetitive use. And with runners, anytime someone gets hurt running, it usually gets called an overuse injury, which, which kind of leads you to believe, well, nothing was really fundamentally wrong. You just did the same thing a few too many times and your body got worn out and broke down a little bit. Uh, you just put a little too much mileage on too soon or whatever. But that's that kind of thinking totally ignores any kind of core pattern like you're talking about or anything. So is the term overuse injury a valid term, do you think? Or, I mean, I know it's a little more nuanced yeah. than that, but you think... When you say overuse injury, does that is that helpful or is that not helpful because it ignores? Because it could be that like this core pattern is the real problem, and if you just fix that, there you go. The mileage wouldn't matter. So, what do you correct when people say overuse injury? You what do, what do you think when you hear that? It tells me they don't know enough about their body, and it's an escape goat for uh, a professional to say that you know I got an overuse injury. It just gives them an out saying they don't understand what's going on. Let's just pick the knee, all right? Yeah. And you've heard of saying, oh, running's bad for my knees. Mm-hmm. No, your bad knees or your torsion in your knee is not good for running. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the way I like to look at it. Fix the torsion in the knee. Get the proper strength, the tension relationship in the knee. Above it and below it, which is treating the spiral, the core, then you can run a lot. We're designed to run a lot. You don't, a toddler's running outside. You don't tell them to stop running saying, that's bad for your knees. <laughs> yeah. Right? You want them to run because it's, it's a form of transportation for one, but it's a form of play. It's a form of development. Walking and running as we age needs to be present. We should be able to do that as far as we can in life. So to tell someone that they shouldn't be running is just because they have an overuse injury is not the complete answer. The answer is to find out why they can't run or why we have pain when we run is the better approach in my opinion. And the better approach is looking at what's happening above it. Okay, where's the spiral going? 
How much is it spiraling out of control from gravity yanking on it? Yeah. Gravity is our, I mean, basically running is time, you know, against, you know, we're running against the clock, right? But we're also running against gravity. Yeah. So this corkscrew thing, I mean, that's such a, I mean, if you're talking about something that's present uh, starting at birth, mm-hmm. I mean, that's such a core, literal core issue. I mean, and it sounds like can contribute to so many things going wrong. Do you see any problems in your practice with athletes or anybody? Any issues that are not related to this corkscrew thing? Like any, are there any other like fundamental root causes of injuries and stuff? I mean, or is it usually this? Is it usually the corkscrew that's the problem that needs to be manipulated? I'm always going to start with looking for that corkscrew, right? Right. And if it's not there, then I'll have to say, "Wow, you did a really job coming out of that," right? As a, and then we have to look out, why did that happen, right? So there's a lot of things that could um, be players as well. So our life, we have different chapters of our life, right, from growing up. But we also have chapters of our life to where how many football hits did we take as a child growing up? How many car accidents were, were we in? How many falls off a bicycle? How many times did we you know, try to be Superman going off the, the trampoline? that we'd have sort of adhesions that are kind of ingrained into our soft tissue system to where that's part of our life story too, soft tissue-wise. So yes, there's other things that could be contributing to could help accelerate that, that core problem, that core spiral. But if that spiral is really not there for that person who was lucky enough to come out of it, yeah, so we have some other things that can contribute to that. Did that yeah. answer the question? Yeah, so aside from the corkscrew, there's lots of potential causes of pain and injuries, but there aren't as many, um, there aren't any other like broad, like universal problems that you see the way this is such a like, you know, issue for literally every person who's born. Yeah. It's more kind of an individual basis beyond that, depending on what the person's experience has been, yeah. So, yeah, so everybody that comes through the door is uh, comes with the first time of some sort of complaint, right? And I could always, it just seems like I could always count on finding the spiral and tracing everything back to the spiral so I don't get to see stuff where that person's coming in with no problems, right? Right. And so I don't get to see the, the huge success stories because everybody that comes through here right. has got a complaint of pain. So I don't get to see the the Michael Jordans and the Kobe Bryants and the people that make right. def- life yeah. easy to feed gravity. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, sure. Uh, so going back to your story... Uh, you said you had a running background and you transitioned into triathlon. How good of a runner were you when you were, like, uh, I guess, when you were, when did you run? Middle school, high school, or? Okay, so let's, let's back way up. So I grew up in Gainesville, right? 
Gainesville, Florida was in the seventies was like a, a mecca for running. Um, you know, there's the Florida Track Club and everything. And what was really special about Gainesville was growing up as a child, I was just, you know, two to three miles away from University of Florida campus growing up. So that was my playground as a 10, 12-year-old kid was me riding my bike down to the University of Florida and play on the track, play in the gym, play in the basketball courts, play, play, play. I was just always playing. And I think that was part of my development as, as an endurance athlete. It was like I was like the first guy to out to play coming home from school and the last kid to come in for dinner. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I was always, you know, I I despised the kids that were saying, no, I'm going to watch Gilligan's Island. <laughs> no, you're coming out. We're, we're going to practice baseball. Whatever season it was, we're going to practice. Um. And if they weren't going to do it, then I was doing it on my own. I was the one shooting, you know, a thousand free throws in the driveway. Yeah. During the summer times in Gainesville, they have um, track meets on a regular basis on a Friday night. And many kids from around the area would, would come in and run in these Friday night track meets. Now that you had the Florida Track Club, you had the Recreation Department, and you had the University of Florida all chipping in to make track and field to be a highlight of the town every Friday night. And it was pretty incredible. So off on the side, you would have all your superstar athletes, these runners, participating and helping and encouraging kids. So I just thought that was normal. You go out on a 5K run, and there there they go. But you're, you're right there with them, the best guys in the world. The Frank Shorters, the Marty Lucorys, the Jack Bachelors, the Byron Dice. All these guys were just happened to be there. So I was just like, well, there they are. Marty Lucorys has been on the podcast, by the way. Well, also, yeah, my mother, uh, I believe my mother treated him when she was in physical therapy there. So I would, you know, after school too, I would go to the physical therapy office where she was treating and I would see people like those type of people. Steve Williams, who was the the fastest 100-meter guy back then in the 70s. He was right there in front of me. So I'm just like, okay, you're just a regular dude to me at 12 years old. Right. But looking back, it's like, those are the best guys in the world. Yeah. Fast forward to high school, um, I didn't make the baseball team. For some reason, I couldn't hit a baseball. I could outrun everybody on the team. I was faster than everybody. I couldn't hit the baseball. So I didn't make the baseball team. So uh, my dad said, you got to do something. So I went to the bread and butter. I went to run. So I started running my junior year in high school. And then senior year, I broke two minutes in the, in the 800. Um, I was just a, a regular 5K guy because I had more speed than I did distance. Yeah. But... I was surrounded again with a coach that was a sub four minute miler and I think we pushed him and he pushed us because he would do the workouts with us um, uh, Bob Hines was his name um, good friend of Jeff's and, and Dave's um, so he was our coach but I mean how many times does a kid get a coach that can break four 
right? To be running side by side with you, encourage you along, right? So that was that was pretty cool. That was uh, pretty cool to have that. But what was also special was the Florida Track Club put together um, seven of the top cross country runners in the in the county there, and I happened to be one of them. And we got to go to represent Florida Track Club as high school kids come up here to North Carolina and run as a team. And so that was pretty cool. So that was kind of like initiated that. So it got me involved. And one of the kids on the team was um, Stephen Cade. His dad was the inventor of Gatorade. Hmm. And so Dr. Cade took a liking to all of us. We're kind of almost like human guinea pigs for him as well. Because um, you know he didn't have young kids to sort of push his products on into in his testing grounds and all that, so he was a very instrumental part of my life. Because when I qualified for Hawaii Ironman, he actually sponsored me at the age of thirty-five. Wow! So he, from the years that I spent running and representing for a track club, paid off. Yeah. Twenty years down the road for him to sponsor me for Hawaii Ironman, not once, but twice. So when you started doing triathlons, uh, had you been running much up? Because if you were 35, by, I know that wasn't right when you started. I don't know. How, how long did it start from when you started uh, doing triathlons to qualifying for the Hawaii Ironman? Yeah, so so uh, I didn't run in college. Uh, you know, one of the at that time, I went to Santa Fe Community College. At that time, the coach that was coaching the 800 meters guys then was a screamer. He, did, he wasn't very pleasant. And I got, as a senior in high school, I got to watch him coach because there was only one track in town. So Santa Fe kids were out there, University of Florida kids were out there, and Buholz High School kids were out there at the same time. So I got to see how that guy was coaching, and it didn't. Yeah. It didn't go, set well with me. So I, I didn't run until in my late 20s start running again. Yeah. Um, so I started off by running the 10Ks and 15Ks around town, around state a little bit. Back then they had this awesome circuit in Florida to where all these Kenyans would show up and running these 10Ks and 5Ks and 15Ks. And we all kind of like did that together. You kept running against the same people over and over. Yeah. Now, was I fast? No, I was just the average Joe. Right. But I enjoyed it a lot. It got rid of a lot of stress for me. So, but then at, at one point, I got encouraged to go watch the St. Saint Anthony's Triathlon over in St. Petersburg. And it was an April, it happens every April, and it's the kickoff race for the sport back then, back in the the 90s so everybody in who was wanted to do well in the sport of triathlon converged on St. St. Petersburg every spring I went over there and I watched how fast these guys were running after they swam and bike and it was pretty inspirational it was like I gotta try that because they were they were they were moving it was like I had to figure out how that how the heck did they do that so I went and bought a bike Joined the Master Swim program. People in the Master Swim program, many of them had already done 
Hawaii Ironman. I'm like, dang, this is the place to be. The guy who coached that team had already done Hawaiian Ironman. He was an exercise physiologist. So I said, man, I need to be here. And so next thing I know, I'm the last guy, the slowest guy in the pool. And slowly I worked my way up through my grit and determination. And next thing you know, it was um, 91. This is when I, or 90, I saw my first triathlon. In 1994, I was at the Hawaiian Ironman. So how did... The Hawaii, that's like the world, what, what is it called? Because that's like a... It was the world championships. World championships for Ironman. So what, I don't know anything about triathlons. I'm trying to, how do you, how would you equate that event to like a running event as far as how competitive, how hard it is to qualify for it or how good you have to be? Like compared to say, I'm thinking of like marathon events you have to qualify for. I mean, there's the Olympic trials, Marathon. There's Boston Marathon. Is there any way? Like, how do you? How okay, so you... yeah, so so Kona, Hawaii, was considered the Super Bowl of triathlons. Right. It's the Super Bowl of marathons. Maybe every four years you got the the Olympics, right? But then you got the 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 lead up to that with your New Yorks and your Bostons and some Londons and whatever. To get to Kona. You had you had your pros, mm-hmm. and to be a pro, you had to uh, finish. And I believe back then it was top eight percent of the winning time three times in one year. Oh, uh, top of any races or any of their qualifying races. Okay, okay, gotcha. So they had to be so to be able to be a pro, you had to first one year do it three times uh-huh. to get a pro card. Okay, I believe. I, this is right. That should be right. Then, they, then following year, they get to go race as a pro. Okay. Now they also have the divisions for age groups, which is where I f- fall in. So at the age of thirty-three, I was racing in that thirty to thirty-five age group, thirty to thirty-four, and so I had to. They would give slots for every age group. So I was lucky enough in 94 to win my age group in a race called Claremont, Florida. There's one spot for that for that race. Oh, so wow. there was like two or 300 people in my division at that race to where I was lucky enough had a spot on day where everything went well. Um, and then... So you had to win the... Did you win the entire race or just no, win your age group? I won the age group, yeah. Yeah. So, but I was—I believe I was in the top ten. Yeah. Um, as you know, you know that age bracket from it for men from age like twenty six to thirty five, thirty eight. Most competitive is is competitive, but it's that's your best of endurance years. Right. So that I mean, it's pretty competitive. So yeah. you may find oftentimes someone in that they're not in the pro division yet, but they're running at pro standards at the age of 33 35 right. yeah and you oftentimes too you have guys that came out of the pro ranks that drop back into the age group ranks because they're no longer a pro yeah. and now they're racing age group was it your goal to try to become a pro mm-hmm. or how I, far away were you from that I was you know I was I couldn't race enough couldn't train enough maybe because right. I did have a day job yeah 
Yeah. Um, and I was kind of maybe past my prime to be able to make that really happen. Yeah. There were times that I did race in some elite divisions just to get my butt spanked. Right. To see what how fast that really is, right? And see how far back I am coming out of the water. It's like, yeah, they're, there's a difference between me and them. Yeah. Right? But um, I have to tell you, and when I turned 41, um, uh, the USAT decided to start offering prize purses for the masters and so at the age of 41 I got really excited and I think I got too excited to where I ended up hurting myself pretty significantly I ended up blowing out a disc in my back uh, and I think it all stood for stood from being too aggressive thinking I could maybe go win some prize money yeah you mentioned your day job because you weren't always in body work, right? Because I think um, you, yeah, when did you start doing that and how did you decide to? Get yeah, into so that? 19, so 94, I was at, I was working um, in landscaping and 95 I was working in landscaping. However, I was married at the time and my wife got sick and, and passed away triggered a major thought in my process my mental process is like life is too short to be miserable at work so I put myself in a position to after 96 that I went to massage therapy school got my permission to touch people with certification and put triathlon on a little bit of a back burner still training a lot but my focus was changing careers. So I was in a landscape construction job all the way up to um, 97. And then I went into body work at that, at that point. Now why did I choose body work to change courses and careers? It was uh, during when I was training so much for those Ironman events, 94, 95, 96. I had this guy come over to the house, and um, I said, man, there's not enough people like him in Tampa. He worked on me, you know, every three weeks or so. Uh, he was a track star as well, so he could talk, we could talk about track and field a lot during, so he understood, uh, you know, the rapport, how to develop a rapport really quickly, because we had the same uh, conversation over and over about track and field yeah. that sort of thing and running that sort of thing and I think that's very important so his name was Boris and I said there's not enough people like Boris here in Tampa I said I want to be like Boris so I went to therapy school and then I went out to Vail, Colorado and then I came back for, to Tampa and then yeah then I met my, my wife Cammy, and then we moved up here and Cool. Um, so back to this corkscrew thing. <laughs> and this is just so crazy because I mean, I think the first time I was over here, I was you were you brought this issue up because you saw it when you looked at me and you asked me like, "Hey, do you notice something about your hips?" And I didn't, I'd never looked at that before. 
So it just kind of blew my mind. Like, this sounds like such a fundamental thing. And why is nobody else ever talking about this when you're going to see people about injuries or anything? So that's what I was wondering. Like, do you think... I think this is like super unique that you have somebody talking about. Like, why? Do, why do you think you don't hear about this so much? Like in the field, it, it, and again, that's my perspective. I could be misrepresenting the field, but um, like I said, you, when you go to see different types of professionals for injuries, I don't think that comes up very much. Why do you? Do you agree with that? And like, why do you think? Well, I ask that question all the time to myself, and um. You know, through most most of our medical knowledge comes out of the allopathic model, where they individually put systems all they separate them all out. Same goes with orthopedic issues; they don't tie the the shoulder in with the hip because you have the orthopedic that's specializing in the shoulder. He does not caring about what's happening in the hip. All he cares about is that rotator cuff tear, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's pretty much the educational system and how everything is pushed out. You know, the pulmonary people are going to stick with the pulmonary stuff. The podiatrist is going to stay with the, the feet. Urinary stuff is right. going to stay with that that individual the medical practice, right? So everything's kind of specialized out. They don't bring the holistic approach yeah. into the medical model of the on how things are taught in the musculoskeletal system. So that way they can have more people in the system because we can spread all these people out to individualize out. Right. All referring to each other like, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I think it's, it's just the way that they're educated. Yeah. It's nothing wrong with what they're doing. It's just not they're not bringing everything in together. That whole spider web or that core spiral we're talking about. Yeah, how it's all there. That makes sense. Um, so when you see this on a daily basis, you know, and you're seeing somebody for the first time, and you're identifying this. I mean, just like broadly speaking, what are you doing to fix it? Because, I mean, it, 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 the theory sounds right. Okay, there's a corkscrew. Let's unwind it. But, I mean, how do you actually do that? Yeah, so you try to find the, the biggest culprit of that. So think of it, that corkscrew is not only a corkscrew, but it's also a fascia system held together very similar to a spider web, right? So one of those strands of spider web is, can be the most dominant right and with fascia system like so what is that what is the most if you take a, if you take a, a a chicken breast that still has a skin on it mm-hmm. and you peel away that skin there's that milky white substance that's surrounding the meat that's fascia and we have that too in the human body and we can have bags of it like it surrounds an example like a hamstring but then we can have a layer of it that kind of comes up the hamstring goes all the way up through the back over our head and latch into some tissue right in our frontal bone so that fascia is all over your muscle covering all your muscles everywhere mm-hmm. and it's all connected to itself everywhere like a spider web like you said yeah okay so all right so if i only 
only had 10 minutes to work with somebody and never ever seeing them again, soft tissue wise is going to be the dominant spot that I can find in that core pattern. And oftentimes it's the lateral quad on the left side. And I don't know if you remember how we started with it. Says I went, I asked you which spot, one, two, or three, uh-huh. right? Which one is holding the most sensation, which means there's more fascia, more tension in that spot, helping and encouraging that left hip to stay in front of the right hip down so more. Yeah. So, and just to, for listeners, what you're talking about is, I, so when I came in, I had a problem with my right hip. My right hip flexor, um, you know, it was technically it was it was officially diagnosed as a uh, before I came to see you as a muscle strain. Um, so right hip was an issue, and you you put pressure on my left quad in three places, like from closest to my knee up closer to my hip, and asked me which you know where it hurt the most or where I felt the most sensation, and then I definitely felt it the most down close to my knee so you're saying that's common for most people is to feel that tension on the outside of their left quad because you like you said 80 percent of people have the torsion on the left side so yeah so so if we if we flash froze you right and we measured the left hip and the right hip to to the knee uh right we would see a different a different measurement so why not dress that place first to allow that to start changing, to allow the right side to say, okay, I don't need to go backwards anymore because the left, left wood is starting to rotate into a better place. So the compensation rule says for the right hip to say, okay, I don't have to go backwards anymore because the left hip is not going forward anymore. So I can start straightening myself out, too. So what you're saying is when when someone's left hip is coming, is forward and maybe tilting because of this core, this fundamental corkscrew problem, it's not because the bones are like set in the wrong place necessarily. It's because the muscle and the muscle fascia is pulling it. Pulling it, holding it. Right. Yeah. Which is connected to muscle, connected to bones. Right. Right. So the bones, yes, the bones. If we take a skeletal image of it, an X-ray, right, we would see yes, the discrepancy is in the hips because the muscles and the fascia is holding them in a bad place. Right. Not so hunky dory. Not so balanced. Not so fundamentally functional. Yeah. Right. And if we can come out of that corkscrew enough we become more functional and then if we start adding fitness training on top of a more functional musculoskeletal system what do we get we get a better performing athlete get a better performance construction worker better performance life right so if you have more than 10 minutes to and more than one day to work with somebody what do you do from that so you find the biggest culprit in the fascia and then where do you go from there then we work you know we work in in other spots that are helping that corkscrew 
to fall into more more challenging against gravity. So, how, how do you identify the culprits in these these trouble spots? Muscle testing. What does that mean? Like we're challenge we're challenging the muscle. So uh, do you remember how I picked you up and set you down with the, with the legs? Right. I asked you to do me some resistance here. Yeah, yeah. It gives me a direction what's happening with how the muscles are responding to what I'm asking them to do. Yeah. yeah. And so the more collapsed or more short a muscle is, the harder it is for it to work. The nervous system picks up on that and it gives you a, a really quick temporary feedback of that tissue not being in its proper balance between left to right, front to back, top to bottom, or in proper nervous system strength. Um, once somebody's had this addressed and hopefully corrected, let's, let's take distance running. I mean, this is a running podcast, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, and even marathoners in particular, if if they're unique, I don't know. If somebody's gotten this corrected, what kind of things moving forward do they need to focus on doing to try to either prevent themselves from... Um, regressing back into the corkscrew or maintaining the balance they've, you know, gotten or, you know, to kind of maintain the the proper form, that kind of thing. Like, what are the most important, other than just their normal running training regimen, what, what kind of ancillary things are important to do to stay healthy and balanced and strong? Well, once you... So everybody... I would recommend everybody needs to know where their 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 faults are out of that that pattern. So for some people, it's their ankles. Some people, it's, it's their quads affecting their knees. So they need to spend more time, maybe stretching that that area or developing more strength in one spot compared to the, to the other side. So um, so there's you know obviously there's there's things like yoga, but there's also you know. Do we need to do more dynamic type of work before they to go out and run, right? Instead of just lacing up and, and going out the door really fast, can they spend an extra 7, 10, 12 minutes of doing some dynamic type of work in the area that's kind of their, their trouble spot within their, their core pattern? That's what I recommend. So they, they need to understand, I think we all tend to just jump out and, and do the sport without understanding um, the human body enough, their human body enough, to where they say, I, I've got to maintain this spot more so than other spots in my body because that's just who I am. Kind of like you know, getting ready to you know, drive a car across the country, right? We need to have a sort of a checklist of what we go through on a daily basis or at least a weekly basis to make sure that we're good to go. For some people, you know, I spend a lot of time with people with their, their Achilles and their, their feet, and we, oftentimes we, we measure a range of motion in their ankle, and you'd be surprised how some people have a range of motion in their ankle way off by two, three, four inches. So you can think what's happening with that. That person is always bumping up against their end range for every foot strike that they're about to push off of, mm. right? And they're wondering why they get plantar fasciitis or Achilles problems or gastroc problems 
always on the same side. But if they have a checklist to where they can get it out to a maintenance program of holding it at six inches and, and check it before they go out for their run, it's, it's an ideal way to be a, a marathoner, right? Same thing with, you know, quad relationship to hamstrings. Yeah, what, what, when you're talking about the ankle three to four inches or six, holding it at six inches, what do you mean by that? So if you, if you go up against a wall and you put your, your big toe six inches away from a wall, uh-huh. right? Standing up? Standing up or, or lunging. Okay. In yeah. lunge position. So you're facing the wall. You're facing the about wall. About six inches away from it. Uh-huh. Okay. And, you, and you, you lunge towards the wall and don't let your, your heel come off the floor. Uh-huh. Your knee wants to be able to be able to get out and touch that wall. Right. So it have six inches of range of motion in the ankle. Oh, gotcha. So that's how you measure. So that's when, when you're saying someone's three or four inches off, you mean that's they're three or four inches less uh, further away from the wall than they should be able yeah so ideally i mean if you look at all the best runners in the world they have that long tibia Mm -hmm. right those kenyan guys and they're they're way out around six plus inches more closer to eight or nine inches so they can load their foot up like crazy compared to most people right right but most people can at one time they had six inches of range of motion in their ankle yeah. What point in their life did they stop having that? So the key is is, is get it there, maintain it there, mm. and the same thing with other parts of the body. And is that the best way? If you lack that six inches, is that the best way to uh, try to get it back? Is it just practicing that exact motion? That's, that's one. Yeah. But there's many ways to yeah. stretch your, okay. your ankles out. Interesting. And even something of as far all the way at the end of your body, like your feet and ankle, that can be related to the cor- the fundamental corkscrew pattern we're talking about. Yeah. So think about what it's really doing. So if if it's going all the way back, if that that corkscrew is prohibiting one side to the other, what do you think is happening with hip extension? Because when you're when your knee is six inches over your foot, how far are you in hip extension as well? So if you're back here pushing off, the knee's got to be over six inches. So now I've got I'm in hip extension here. Yeah. So if I'm only over to go here, because my ankle, my hip extension is reflection of that, right? Right. Same thing happens with the hip extension. If you have a problem with hip extension, the ankle now becomes educated to be short. Hmm. So here's our core. Right. And it, <laughs> and it all transforms and works one with the with the other. The spider web. The spider web. That's Very so good. crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's so crazy because, I mean, yeah, you're right. You, when you, If you go see somebody about your ankle or your foot or whatever, I mean, it's like blinders go up. It, zero, zero in on that, the pain. Let's, let's massage the pain. Let's ice the pain. Let's rest it. Let's elevate it. You know? <laughs> Beat it to heck, <laughs> yeah, right? That's it. And then we don't do anything with the hip. So we may get out of pain there in the ankle with some modalities sure however the root cause in the hip 
And next thing you know, that that runner's eight months later, back in the same position. Right. So you got to look at the the whole system and how it works together. Yeah. Get rid of the challenges. So you said people need to know their spots, you know, if they have a faulty spot or whatever. I mean, do you think most people kind of just know from experience what that spot is? Or is there a way to kind of do a diagnosis of figuring out what your, where your trouble spots are? Yeah, a lot of it is just having great body awareness skills. We don't have an app yet that tells us where our, you know, we can't touch our phone. And tell us with our finger and tell us where our problems are. Yeah. <laughs> Not yet. Um, but yes, we have to, uh, you know, be able to do some body reading, look at ourselves, maybe look at ourselves in the mirror, have a, another professional tell us what, what's going on, um, identify. Yeah. So, speaking of having professionals tell you, you, I was looking at your website. It looks like you will work with people virtually, like over video. Do you yeah, do that like virtually? a Zoom call or something. Yeah. You know, someone can stand in front of the, the camera, right? And I can say, you know, this is what's going on. This is what we can see. Can you feel that? Can you see that as well, right? This drop down into a lunge. Can you feel the difference between the left and right? And so then I can give them some stretching exercises or yeah. strengthening exercises to say, okay, for the next 30 days, you're only going to stretch the left quad and the right hamstring and right glute. That'll start the motion of starting to even things out a little bit. Then we can drop down to fix the Achilles and the, the mm-hmm. feet problem. Right. Um, so how well does – I mean, obviously that doesn't sound like a, a – optimal substitute for having somebody actually be on your table having your hands on them but I mean how does that work pretty well I mean do, have you found good success with people that it doesn't it doesn't happen too often that I get that remote individual yeah um, a lot of people le- need to see more of a faster change right. so they'd rather spend time coming in yeah sure to doing that but during COVID, we had no choice. I was shut down, so that was an option for me to to treat those individuals. Yeah. So if somebody's listening to this that's not local to upstate or, you know, and interested in maybe seeing somebody in their area that is on this same page you're talking about, how can people, like, find – I mean, is – structural energetic therapy or is there some certain term they can search for like or some certain discipline or certification yeah they have they have have a website um, structural energetic therapy website they have a list of practitioners there yeah Um, you can certainly go there you can go to um, Dallas Hancock he's got his list of practitioners there um Certainly, people can call me, yeah, and they can talk to me about their problems, stuff like that, and I can hook them up with people in their area if we can find somebody in their area. Um, GregSpindler.com is mm-hmm. that where you go? Yeah. Okay. And they can uh, contact me 
through email, greg at gregspindler.com. They can call here at the office. I'm here for everybody. Um, but the biggest thing is, is make sure that the therapist that they're looking into can speak their language, right? You don't want to go to a therapist that hasn't been there, done that, with what you're trying to get accomplished. If you're a marathoner, make sure that person understands what marathoning is before you have uh, someone who doesn't understand what it truly is. You want to have somebody in the same mindset as you. I don't work on people that are ice skaters. Right. You know, but I could work on someone who's a hockey player that plays construction. Right? Right. Yeah. Notice how I said play construction. (laughs) Yeah. Because they're an athlete too, yeah. right? They just happen to do hockey as a hobby. Um, so find find that person that can talk your language. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again for doing this. This is fun. This is awesome. Great way to enjoy our day. Yeah, I think this will be helpful. And uh, yeah, I'm gonna put your like website and stuff on the description. So if people wanna, people are interested in this stuff and want to get a little more info they can reach out to you if you want because i know for me this is the first time hearing about any of this stuff and it it makes so much sense and it's it was really nice to have somebody actually even have a theory about root cause stuff i mean as opposed to just like well you're hurt let's take it easy for a while you know <laughs> so <laughs> I, this is really refreshing. So I think, yeah, people would, uh, people should check out your website and read up and reach out if they have any more questions. Yeah, and I'm available for workshops and stuff like that. You know, yeah. You know, um, when I first moved up here too, um, I don't know if you remember Roy Benson when he was coaching at the University of Florida. When I was a kid, my parents seemed to get rid of my brother and I during the summers. They would ship us up here, but Jimmy Carnes is camp up in Brevard mm, yeah and um, and then that went away and then Roy Benson who was an also a University of Florida coach he started the distance running camp up here in Asheville it's now it's owned by Nike so I reached out to him I said hey can I come up and talk about what I do to all these kids and there's like 200 kids up there and I spent you know a couple weeks Days going up there and at a running camp at a running camp. Oh, okay, you know, getting kids on stage and you know getting the pointer out and going look. look. Yeah, so you'll talk to any any kind of like running or triathlon related people, anything like that. Yeah, it's okay. just because it's easy for me to yeah jump into their their language. Right, right. been there, done that. And if. Yeah, or if people want to, because uh, you do like education within your discipline too, like with other therapists. Trying to launch that again, you know, COVID blew all that up. Yeah. It was all hands-on stuff in person, right? Um, so we're trying to figure out a way to do that again. Okay, cool. All right, well, thanks for being here again, and uh, yeah, I'll see you when I come back in a few weeks. That's right. All right, man. All right, thank you.